Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Every second we are waiting for the Ukrainian army to liberate us. We wonder how long can Russians last? We have to deoccupy uh, all the territories that Russia is occupying since it's invaded in February 22. Not only because of the mere fact that we have to win, but because of the fact that we have to liberate people there. Uh, we were in the basement and they uh, arrived here and uh, called us out. We stand uh, near the garage. Uh, they, uh, we think they like shoot us. These people are suffering. They are suffering every day. My name is Oz Katerji, and I'm a conflict correspondent currently based in Kyiv, Ukraine. I've covered conflicts across the Middle East, in Syria and Iraq. And now I'm here, witnessing Ukraine's resistance against Putin's forces. But despite their resilience, Ukraine's much-discussed counter-offensive this year has arguably failed to live up to expectations. But what's the real story here? And where does that leave the future of the conflict looking forward to 2024? Our full focus is on the front line. We must all understand very clearly as clearly as possible that the Russian forces on our southern and eastern lands are investing everything they can to stop our warriors. And every thousand meters of advance, every success of each of our combat brigades deserves gratitude. Ukraine will continue fighting. Ukrainians won't stop. This is not a drill. Hello and welcome back to This Is Not A Drill. Winter has arrived here in Ukraine as the autumn leaves have now been buried under thick white snow. And with little territorial gains for the Ukrainian armed forces in the spring and summer, criticism of Ukraine's progress in the war has been increasing in Europe and the United States. With the prolonged Republican inertia over military aid to Ukraine in the United States Congress and victories for Putin allies in recent European elections, Ukraine's ability to keep its front line supplied in the now freezing temperatures has been strained, and after spending the last nine months on a mostly defensive footing, the Russians are again trying, and failing, to go on the offensive in the east of Ukraine. But even under this pressure, and as Russia ploughs more men and armour into the meat grinder of Avdivka, 
There are strong signs that the Ukrainians have no intention of having a quiet winter, as their operation to establish a bridgehead east of the Dnipro River in Kherson has been a success. Later this episode, we will hear the Ukrainian point of view with security analyst Maria Avdiva. But first, how should we judge Ukraine's campaign to date? For a critical assessment of the war, we turn to an American journalist who's been breaking major stories on Putin's wars for many years. Editor of investigative news outlet, The Insider, Michael Weiss. So let's start things off going big with the counteroffensive. What happened this year? What didn't happen this year? Why and why not? Well, what didn't happen is the Ukrainians did not reach the Sea of Azov, um, bisecting Russia's line of communication, which had been, I think we can fairly agree, the main goal of what they launched in early June. I mean, I think one piece of the puzzle is the Russian fortifications and defensive lines were just too robust. Every Ukrainian I've spoken to about this issue says that they didn't fathom just how heavily mined they were. You know, NATO countries, the United States had been training up Ukrainian brigades on combined arms maneuver using heavy armor, um, the strikers, uh, you know, the vehicles that have been provided by Western countries to kind of breach these Russian defenses. Um, the problem is when the Ukrainians attempted to do this, they got blown up. Most famously, that early debacle by the 47th Brigade uh, in which they lost, what, half a dozen uh, vehicles, uh, although uh, importantly, every soldier survived. So you had a situation in which the Ukrainians um, resorted to what they know and do best, which is attritional warfare. So instead of trying to make a mad net dash through dragon's teeth and you know these Russian defensive lines, they simply pounded the hell out of the Russians. And in that respect, there were dividends that started to get paid. Uh, the, on the best days uh, during the summer for the Ukrainian side, they were destroying 10 pieces of Russian artillery per day, or even more than that. And the idea was to simply wear down Russian defenses, deplete Russia's morale, something which I tracked very closely. Uh, if you look at Russian Telegram, what the Russian military bloggers had said was that they were getting their asses handed to them. In particular, they had no counter-battery. This was the, um, the General Popov, uh, his, his communique that got leaked um, and he was sacked, you know, essentially stating exactly this, that the Russian response was, was not sufficient. That to one side, though, what people were looking at, and I think how we, we would go about determining success for the Ukrainians was lines on the map, right? So the only real breakthrough that they'd had was uh, Robotna, which was one of the early targets of the counteroffensive. So, you know, I just spoke to uh, Carl, as we call him, an Estonian military analyst, who I think has been very astute and prescient about the, the tick-tock of this war. And he said, look, you know, in the South um, and also in the East, frankly, the lines have remained static and probably will do throughout the course of the winter. Um, we can discuss Russia's own attempted offensive for uh, Avdivka, which was a complete failure. Uh, what has happened, though, uh, which I think is beneficial for the Ukrainian side, and I know you, Oz, have written about this, and I've been banging on about this as well, are other concomitants, uh, which whether or not you want to in incorporate them into the counteroffensive as it was originally conceived, doesn't matter. I mean, this is war, and what matters in war is which side is actually making progress and which side is not. And on the Ukrainian side, uh, they have effectively neutralized the Black Sea Fleet 
hard to overstate how significant uh, an achievement that is. Um, and they've done this uh, through a combination of special forces raids in Crimea, um, the use of their own homebrew naval drones, the, the sea babies, which have completely terrorized both commercial and military watercraft on the Russian side, cruise missiles, the Storm Shadow, which famously destroyed the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol uh, several months ago. Um, and now, of course, they've got a, a cluster uh, munitions uh, version of the attackums, which they long wanted. So through this kind of um, sort of death by a thousand cuts, to use a perhaps a, a non-military metaphor, they've managed to break the, the Russian-imposed blockade, get grain out, restart Ukrainian shipping, without which there is no Ukrainian economy. No small feat there. Um, second, what they've also managed to do, uh, and I think there's now fairly good confirmation of this, is establish four to five bridgeheads uh, on the other side of the Dnipro River in Kherson. And uh, as Carl has it, this is a fairly sizable achievement because it puts them within spitting distance, um, about 70 kilometers or so of Crimea. Um, I mean, I remember from my own reporting before the start of the counteroffensive, I had already gotten a sense that, look, we should look south, not east. Uh, Donbass for the Ukrainians was was described to me as such a black hole uh, that it's not worth uh, trying to recapture right now. But southern Ukraine, Crimea, and especially the peninsula is seen as uh, a much more prized and, and achievable target for the simple fact, according to the Ukrainians, that they believe the Russians, if significantly pressurized in, in that area, will flee. Uh, and they also believe that the population is not nearly so brainwashed or won over to the Russian cause that they'll simply allow uh, the return of Ukrainian forces. Now, we can argue whether that's feasible, but that, that was the, the, the logic I've, I've been hearing. So I would look at this. I would say the counteroffensive was not a success as defined by both the United States and Ukraine. We have to be very honest about that. However, there have been other positive signs for the Ukrainian side, which cannot be discounted because, as I say, you know, you have to look at the totality of a conflict in war. Ben Hodges, you know, the, the general who was in charge of uh, America's presence in Ukraine, its training program in Ukraine several years ago, said, look, we, we in the United States bang on about combined arms warfare all the time and, and also multidimensional warfare. So, you know, by land, by air, by sea, uh, taking the fight to the enemy on his own turf, going deep behind enemy lines, which the Ukrainians, by the way, have also done, striking inside Russian Federation territory using drones and their own proxy force, which they've recruited and trained up and armed. You know, he points to the Black Sea region. He points to unforeseen developments such as the uh, Board of Prigozhin coup or insurrection in Russia, which I think we can also fairly assess was the result of contradictions between Wagner and the MOD being exacerbated over time, which the Ukrainians were well aware of. I mean, I had interviewed uh, Kirill Budanov, the head of GUR, Ukraine's military intelligence service, who kind of cheekily said that Wagner was the only real kind of fighting force on the other side that he'd encountered. I, I, I think there was an awareness that if they could drive a, a, a wedge between these two elements in Russia, this could lead to some co confrontation or conflict. And indeed, I mean, Wagner got within 100 miles of sacking Moscow uh, also this summer in the midst of the counteroffensive. So I think, you know, they're doing multidimensional warfare. 
So as a journalist, I, I well understand, you know, we like the simple answers to things. Question, did your campaign succeed? Top line answer, no, it did not. But uh, there were other things that have to be taken into account. So I wanted to go into a little bit more detail there on the military side of what you were talking about. You mentioned the 47th Brigade and, you know, the Russians milked that propaganda wise. Now explain that for our audience. That was just one assault early on and the Russians milked it for weeks, taking different drone shots and videos of the same destroyed vehicles, you know, but the Ukrainians did change tactics very quickly after that and, and stopped doing these full frontal assaults into minefields, which were never going to work. It didn't matter which generation of vehicle you had. Now, what does Ukraine's offensive capability look like today after the counteroffensive has ended this year? Uh, how much of those Western vehicles do they still have? How much of those Western-trained battalions, brigades, regiments are all still intact and functioning? Uh, and did they use that over the course of several months, or do they still have a lot of that in reserve to go again uh, in the spring next year? Well, if we look at this debacle as a kind of microcosm of, of the, the larger phenomenon, what's interesting about this, and you're right, the Russians milked this propagandistically for all it was worth. But the important thing to note is that A, as I mentioned earlier, every Ukrainian soldier caught up in that maelstrom survived. These pieces of equipment did what they were intended to do, which is protect Ukrainian lives, right? Um, And also, not every piece of kit was destroyed, which, of course, you don't see on RT footage, right? You just see burning, you know, plumes of smoke coming off of of American-made armored vehicles. And the Russians were doing this for a very specific reason, right? They don't want the West to supply Ukraine. So they want to try and persuade Western taxpayers that their money is 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 going to waste, uh, which of course we can get into what security assistance is and is not because I've I've been studying this recently. I I, I attended and and this I'm mentioning this as a segue into my next point. I attended a conference at Northwestern University in the suburbs of Chicago a few weeks ago, with I mean literally everybody who is in charge of training foreign armies, supplying them with weapons and ammunition, doing the net assessment as to what they need and what they don't need. And there was a view expressed, perhaps not a unanimous one, but an overwhelming majority, shall we say, that the way the United States goes about this is cack-handed. We talk about combined arms warfare, you know, this, this Western American doctrine. But we haven't really done it to the letter since World War II. One of the constituent parts of combined arms warfare is you you have to have air superiority. Well, famously, the Ukrainians do not. So they came in. The Russians knew they were coming, were prepared. And as I said, on the ground level, trenches, layers upon layers of mine. And when I say mines, I mean it got to the point where the Ukrainians were crawling on their hands and knees, manually demining terrain because their mine clearing kit simply wasn't up to the challenge for this. And the, the Russians were bringing to bear their helicopters, the, the alligator attack helicopter, which was wreaking all kinds of havoc and, and destruction for the Ukrainians. So what the Ukrainians have learned to do is they went back to their, their own doctrine, which is kind of rooted in the Soviet era, of constant artillery barrages, attritional warfare. They've also adapted and they've innovated their own domestic military industrial capacity by manufacturing drones. It's extraordinary what they've managed to do with things that can be bought from hobby shops. Uh, I, I interviewed a guy who had recently been to uh, Robotnya, one of the, the only Westerners I know who's been that close to the contact line in the South. 
And he told me a story about a Ukrainian unit that had built a drone for $13,000 US. This drone for 13 grand is launched at night, deep behind enemy lines, fixed with a Soviet era or Russian mortar, because the Ukrainians, remember, in the counteroffensive in Kharkiv managed to acquire limitless supplies of Russian ammunition that were simply left behind because they were too busy getting the hell out of the field to take their stuff with them. So they take these Russian mortars, they fly, let's say, 16 to 20 kilometers behind enemy lines, drop the mortar on a Russian command center, and then fly another drone with surveillance capability to film the command center going up in smoke. And then the best part is the $13,000 drone, rather than self-destructing or being caught up in the, the, the carnage, flies home. And, you know, one of the questions that came up at this, this conference was, well, look, if, if they're doing this so well, instead of wondering about, you know, what airframe could they best use, the Swedish Gripen, the Eurofighter, the F-16, maybe we should help them just mass manufacture the things that they have invented themselves and are using to great effect on the battlefield as a, a method of improvisation. I think the broader point here is, and, and here I have to, you know, give due credit to your motherland, Oz. The Brits, I think, understand the nature of this conflict and the way the Ukrainians are fighting it a lot better than the Americans do. And they do it not for any philosophical reasons, but for the simple fact that the Brits have a presence in Ukraine, British intelligence officers who are embedded at a granular level, frankly, with Ukrainian forces. So they see the conflict up close. The United States, as of February, maybe even late January 2022, pulled out all of its forces, including the Rangers who were training up uh, Ukrainian soldiers and just remove them from the country. So everything we're getting is, is, is secondhand or it's, you know, it's YouTube videos, it's GoPro camera footage, but that's not the same thing, you know? So I think we're stuck in this, in this sort of um, very outmoded and unimaginative model of security force assistance. Uh, and, and we have to be a little more creative and adaptive. And one of the problems I've had with this war and the way it's been covered uh, and I don't mean this, this is not a blanket statement because I, there has been superb journalism across the board here. But I think in the popular imagination, uh, it's what I would call or what has been called, and I'm co-opting shamelessly, strategic narcissism. We look at a, an allied or partner country, how they're going about an armed struggle and say, this is what they're doing wrong because here's what we would do differently. But we're not there. And what we would do differently based on what's in our textbooks might not conform to the reality of the situation on the ground. Uh, so we, we, we have a tendency to lecture and not listen. And we saw this most egregiously in the anonymous leaks around June, July, August of this past summer, where unnamed DOD officials were wagging the finger and, and sort of clucking at the Ukrainian way of warfare without any real insights into what it's like to be in the trenches or what it's like to crawl on your hands and knees and, and manually remove landmines. It is clear that the scale of the task facing the Ukrainians is still vast. However, it is not insurmountable. But there could be no mistake Ukraine is preparing itself for a long war. To help us understand the assessment of the military campaign in 2023 from a Ukrainian perspective, 
we were also joined from Kiev by Ukrainian defense analyst and security expert Maria Avdiva. Welcome, Maria. How are you? Uh, thank you, Osa. It's uh, good to, to be with you. I'm fine, thanks. So let's get right into it. Can you give us your take on how Ukrainians and Ukraine themselves uh, view the events of this year? I think that uh, if we look at the timeline, the expectations uh, for uh, counteroffensive uh, started to rise uh, in spring. And there were even uh, people who were saying that Ukraine will be able to get to Crimea as soon as this autumn. And all of this, uh, including the pressure from the Western partners, uh, created some kind of overheating expectations of what this counteroffensive might bring. Ukraine started this without having the superiority in the air, uh, which uh, I think is uh, crucial uh, because the terrain on the south where it was happening and is still happening is very plain. And uh, for that kind of terrain, you need air uh, possibilities. But the main thing here is that people on the ground who actually fight in the trenches, uh, they were not expecting too much. And they were quite irritated by these overheated expectations in the press. Uh, because uh, they knew that it is difficult, it's hard, and every step further takes many lives of Ukrainian soldiers. The problem is people watching the war from their screens, not taking into account uh, how it's happening in reality on the ground. Ukrainians that I speak to on a regular basis are still very much convinced that they can win this war. There are some, you know, since this year, there have been, um, there's some dissent in that on the ground. With what you've just said in mind about the situation on the front lines, how does next year become any different to what we've just went through this year or the year after that, for example? Well, I think the biggest difference is uh, if we uh, consider the situation right now and, for example, a year ago, that a year ago there were expectations for a quick back breakthrough. Uh, now Ukrainians are fully aware that the war uh, is going to be long. Everyone thinks here and believes uh, that Ukraine will win. And Ukraine has no other option because this is the war for survival of Ukraine. But we have to prepare that it's not going to be as fast as possibly we were hoping a year ago. So some analysts might say that actually a long war favours Russia. So as a Ukrainian analyst, how do you approach that topic? Absolutely. This is completely, I agree on that 100%. Russia is using this time and this is their strategy. They know that time is playing uh, on, their, uh, on their side. And that is why Ukraine is asking all the time for more weapons and more aid packages because it's vitally needed on the front lines to make this progress, to make this breakthrough. Uh, so it depends a lot on when uh, and how much uh, weapons will Ukraine have and uh, if uh, the production of the weapons will be successfully uh, managed 
because there are like some initiatives where the weapons will be not only supplied, but there are uh, production facilities built. But in any case, the winter is ahead. Both uh, Russia and Ukraine will not be able to make a very fast breakthrough in the coming months because of the weather and the weather conditions. So uh, this is not going to happen soon. But in a longer term, in a longer perspective, it depends very much on uh, what weapons and when will arrive. So one of the things that I noticed this year uh, covering the conflict is that finally the dam broke on all of the taboo weaponry uh, that last year was being refused to be sent by Western partners. This year, all of that's changed. That includes F-16s, that includes TACMs, uh, Army Tactical uh, Missile Systems, the big tanks, the Leopards, all of these uh, were added to the arsenal too. So next year... Ukraine won't be facing the same issue that it did at the beginning of the year, that it was still lobbying for weapons that it had not received. Do you think that changes things substantially for next year? Well, Oz, it's uh, really great that Ukraine is getting these kinds of new weapons and new equipment. But the thing is that Russia is not just staying there and watching. They are also preparing. Because as we have previously discussed, Russia is using time and they also use this time uh, to uh, get new weapons from their partners uh, and also to develop the technology because this war is also shifting uh, in the side to, 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 to become the war of drones when not only people but drones are active on the battlefield. And if we compare situation now and a year ago, this field has completely changed. It developed so much, it's difficult even to imagine uh, how many drones are uh, being used, uh, how active are they being used uh, on the front lines. So uh, this means it will be difficult for Ukraine. New uh, types of weapons or new uh, numbers uh, have to continue coming, and this is crucial. I'll just follow up on that quickly before I move on to politics. What support do you want from Western governments to arrive over the next few months? Well, the uh, support which is crucial on the battlefield, this is uh, air defense systems, more ammunition for artillery, uh, F-16s, which are uh, crucial, uh, and then uh, more uh, longer-range missiles, because we have the systems, but we need missiles to continue using them. Okay, now on to the politics. A lot has changed in Ukraine politically since uh, the full-scale invasion began in February 2022, with the most recent developments uh, being that uh, Ukraine has and Moldova have been uh, granted the right to begin accession talks with the European Union. It now seems like joining the European as a full member state uh, is is on the cards for Ukraine. Not that this is imminent, not that it's going to happen within the next couple of years, but the process towards that has begun. What what are the impacts on Ukrainian politics that these events have had? Well, for the first thing, it's uh, important to say that Ukrainians are feeling as part of Europe uh, for a long time. Uh, in 2014, uh, Ukrainians went 
to Maidan, there was a revolution of dignity when people of Ukraine said they no longer want any kind of ties with Russia. And since then, uh, Ukrainian is moving constantly in the direction of the European Union. Uh, many people are now forced uh, to flee to Europe, but they integrated into European society. We feel European. We don't feel uh, the part of the uh, Russian Empire and everyone uh, looks at the communist past with the horror uh, being part of the empire where Russia was dominant and uh, destroying culture, history and killing people and uh, starving them to death. Uh, so this is how people see it. Politically, uh, Ukraine has to change a lot and President Zelensky is doing a lot and his government, but we have to understand that the ongoing war uh, puts a lot of restrictions on the steps that uh, the president and his office can make. And this means that many of the legislation which will be uh, working normally in the normal situation are now restricted uh, because of that. So this is not moving as fast as possibly we would like it. But on the other hand, there are great uh, civil society initiatives, very active, who are uh, who work as the watchdogs. Uh, and uh, I'm very positive about that. I mean, about the uh, developments inside Ukraine, because uh, I have witnessed myself how Ukraine has changed uh, since the uh, post-communist state to what it is now uh, and how the people have changed and everything. It's a completely different country. If you've appreciated what you've heard so far and would like to help us make the show, which will hit your podcast players weekly, then you can support us via Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get exclusive extra content plus access to our merch and the chance to have a say in future episodes. Just search Patreon This Is Not A Drill to sign up now. Ukraine's successes so far in the war have been down to several factors. Primarily, the defiance, courage and resolve of the Ukrainian people and their will to stay in the fight but also of Ukraine's ability to outsource its wartime economy, with Western military aid a critical component of that. With the end of the year in sight, attention now turns to next year, not just on the front lines of the war in Ukraine, but also of the diplomatic and political developments that may threaten the pipeline of aid keeping Ukraine's war effort afloat. One potential major threat for Ukraine remains a Trump election victory in 2024 and the consequences of that could be catastrophic. To close this week's show, a warning that should be taken seriously in capitals across Europe. Michael Weiss. So what you had in Trump 1 was institutional Republicans who were still very much of a Cold War mentality or understood the threat posed by Putin's Russia, kind of overrode the president's own instinct and did things that were against what he had advocated on the campaign trail. These were the, the so-called adults in the room. They did exist. The danger now, and I'm very, very pessimistic if Trump is, is elected, is that now he is angrier. He is out for blood. He wants to clean house. And he's going to install at every level just absolute toadies who share his ideology and his 
uh, view of the world. Also, let us not forget his first impeachment was over something to do with Ukraine. So I think he sees Ukraine as an abscess that needs to be lanced. He hates this country. He hates what it's done to his presidency, to his legacy. He wants to make this conflict go away. He maintains that he and only he can cut a deal with Putin that would be satisfactory to both sides. I think it would be an unmitigated disaster for Ukraine if he became president again. The only thing that could um, mitigate that disaster would be uh, for European resolve and unanimity for uh, sending security assistance in perpetuity. And you see some encouraging signs here. The Germans are set, or at least I think they're set, based on media reports, to approve double the amount of money that they have sent to Ukraine for the next year. So it's going to go from 4 billion euro to 8 billion euro. Now, this is a country that had trouble sending helmets at the start of the full-scale invasion. And now they're talking about essentially holding the Ukrainian army aloft. So it's not possible for Ukraine to survive and also to continue to fight the war, but it gets much, much harder. And also U.S. leadership as a metaphysical thing exists. People may not like it. Emmanuel Macron may may cry himself to sleep over it at night, but it exists. And if the United States says, right, we're washing our hands of this, it's not going to be long before other countries decide, well, why should we bother them? Can Ukraine survive? You know, I, I deal in intelligence. I'm writing a book about intelligence and I've been asking spies, what is your read on the current state of play? I, I think the consensus I've, I've received in reply is that, well, we're not nearly as optimistic as we were last January, meaning that Ukraine will have this all sewn up. But we're not dooming. We're not catastrophic. Um, we, we don't see Russia being capable of taking Kyiv again. We don't see Russia capable of really grabbing up more terrain. So the worst case scenario would be a stalemate depending on how long it goes, depending on what the mood is in Ukraine, fissures that we see within the kind of um, social cohesion or political consensus that had obtained until now, that might prompt at some point the Ukrainians to decide, let's start at least thinking about negotiating with the Russians and coming up with some kind of diplomatic settlement. I don't think they're there yet. It's been said, and I think there's there's certainly a degree of truth to it, that the, the current crisis in the Middle East, the Israel-Gaza conflict is a distraction from Ukraine, that can be bad, but it can also be good, if you know what I mean. The less Western media pays attention to it, the more breathing space it gives the Ukrainians to kind of regroup. And I think we're seeing some of that happening as well. First of all, uh, it's important to realize that uh, the war has not to become the question of political debate and the support for Ukraine, which unfortunately sometimes it looks like it's happening. The other thing is that Russia is uh, the aggressor state threatening not only Ukraine, but the uh, other democracies. And they put it like openly. They openly say that they are confronting, they are fighting not with Ukraine. They are fighting with NATO. That's what they say. And their their main country, uh, Putin says, that Russia is fighting with is the United States of America. So actually what is happening now is the U.S. uh, may uh, and will uh, win in the war with Russia without uh, using uh, American soldiers 
in Ukraine. So by providing more help and more aid, they're actually winning in the war with their uh, main adversary. Uh, so this is, I think, the most important point that uh, uh, Americans have to realize and those who are skeptical about uh, providing more aid. This is not about the uh, gains of territories. Uh, this is about winning the war uh, with the country which says their initial goal uh, is to conquer more and to create the imperial state. So no matter if people in other countries want this war or not, because no one wants the war, everyone wants to live in peace. There is a country that wants to continue. And this country is Russia. And the president of Russia is Putin, who says, I want more and more. And the support for the war is growing inside Russia, which is actually a very terrifying thing. And until there is country that wins in this war, which has to be Ukraine, uh, it will continue. So he is not going to say, okay, I'm done, uh, we withdrew the troops. We have to make him uh, make this step. Then uh, Ukraine will continue fighting. The Ukrainians won't stop. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Oz Kattergy and produced by me, Robin Lieber. The assistant producer is Liam Tate, with music by Paul Hartnell, socials by Jess Harpin and art by Jim Parrott. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and executive producer Martin Boytosh. And This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.